Well, good morning, Faith. Welcome back to our series for 2023, The Life of Christ. As we walk through this year, we are focusing in on the events that took place in Jesus Christ's life, His lifetime. But I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that this is one part of God's amazing plan for you and me. It culminates in Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection, but the entire Bible is one connected story. I grew up in church from the time I was born until now, but it wasn't until I was 12 years old that I was in a a solid Bible-believing church, and we spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. Now, I always thought that we should have spent more time in the New Testament. After all, that was the one for the church, right? In the Old Testament, that that was for the Jews. However, I was wrong. But in my experience over the years, I would have to say that there are a lot of Gentile believers that have a very limited understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. I also find that many of those same believers have an open, hungry, and, and are even eager to know more about the foundations of the faith that we find in the Old Testament that lead to the New Covenant that all of us as believers, Jewish and Gentiles, are now under. I'm not trying to say that the New Testament is less important than the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is also not less important than the New. The fact is is that the thing that makes the New Testament new is that there was an Old Testament. So a really good way to look at this is to realize that when Jesus taught, when He laid out His messianic credentials, He never ever used the New Testament. He never preached from the New Testament. He couldn't have. It hadn't been written yet. It was always, from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Case in point from the book of Luke. One day Jesus came to Nazareth, the town that he grew up in. And as was his custom, he went to church, he went to synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Luke tells us that he unrolled the scroll and he found a place where it was written in Isaiah that the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when he was done, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. Why? Well, it would have been normal for any Jewish man given the privilege to read from the scrolls to then comment on the future fulfillment of the prophetic word that he had just read and how it fit with any other of the other readings of the day. But Jesus, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is in the synagogue at Nazareth. He's reading from Isaiah 61. And he is telling all those in the synagogue on on Shabbat, all Jews, who else would there be, that he is fulfilling the very specific Old Testament prophetic scripture that he had just read in their hearing. That the whole purpose of his first coming was to proclaim the good news, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. They were so mad that they tried to take him out and throw him off of a cliff. But this is my point. Jesus went to the Old Testament, didn't he? When Jesus, or even the apostles, for that matter, referred to the Scriptures in the first century, it was always the Old Testament. Let me give you another example, also in Luke, Luke 24. 
This is right after the resurrection. In fact, it's the exact same day that the resurrection occurred. And two of Jesus' disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus later in the afternoon. And while they are walking, Jesus drew near and began walking with them. But they didn't realize, they didn't recognize him, they didn't know who he was. And he asked them what they were talking about. And one of them asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know what has happened in the last couple days? Dude, where have you been? What has happened to you? And Jesus says, what What things? I would have loved to have seen the, the look on their face when he asked them that question. What things? And so they begin to explain to him who he is, who Jesus was, who they hoped he'd be, what they hoped he would do, which is to free Israel and to reestablish their rule. But what happened to him was this. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, reset Israel as the power. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. They go on to talk about women who, who showed up at the tomb to find that it was empty that morning. And now Jesus opens up to them and, and notes specifically what he taught them and from where he taught it. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe that all, all of what the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And here it is, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, Old Testament, concerning himself. I grew up thinking at times that the New Testament was for Christians and the Old Testament was for Jews. But Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, brought both the Old and the New seamlessly together. And if that is how Jesus taught, not to mention the apostles, how can we ignore or disregard a part of the Bible that is obviously so important? Especially when the entire Bible is one connected story. So it's impossible to understand the New Testament without a basic understanding of the Old Testament. It's like showing up to the second act of a two-act play having completely missed the first act. Not long ago, my wife and I were invited to the wedding of a dear friend, a, a guy we went to high school with. And his only daughter, he had four boys and one girl, she was being married. We showed up, literally pulled up to the front door of the church just as they were coming out the front door to go over to the reception. Boy, did we get the time wrong, like way wrong. You should have seen the looks on their faces, if looks could kill. In fact, I think we actually followed the bride and groom over to the reception. It was embarrassing. But one could argue we skipped the boring part and just got to the really good part, the reception, where everybody wants to be. I don't think they saw it that way. And I know God does not view the Old Testament that way. The New Testament without the Old is like a roof with no house under it. I grew up hearing this expression, what is in the old concealed is by the new revealed. Everything about Jesus is there in the Old Testament. It was just hidden unless you could see with New Testament eyes that it was there. Amen. We'll look for tie-ins or tie-backs as we continue this morning. We want to remind you, if you missed any message, you can always catch up at ffcsermon or sermons.org where you can download, listen online, share it with a friend. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, click on the live tab, and then on YouTube or Facebook and watch a previously recorded message. So let's pray and we'll continue for this morning. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you that you love us. 
and that your plan began long before we were even born, before we were even created. You had a plan from back in eternity that would carry us through our time all the way through eternity in the future. Father, we thank you that you love us, that you care for us, that we are never out of your sight. We're never out of your reach. Father, we are never out of your care. We thank you for your presence here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at yet another of Jesus' miracles. They just keep on coming. I mean, he is on a roll. Up to this point in Jesus' ministry, we have recorded for us in the Gospels 19 miracles that had happened so far. Now, why do I say recorded for us? Well, let me ask you another question. How many miracles did Jesus perform? How many did he perform? Well, if you ask Google, you'll get more than 35 million results, which confirm that Jesus performed 37 miracles before his death. They're recorded for us in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what if I were to tell you that Jesus did many, many other things? Would you believe me? For instance, I bet if they had straws and cups or juice boxes, you know with those little teeny straws that are so hard to get in? Back in Jesus' day, this would have been a miracle too. Watch this little girl try so hard to get this straw into place. <laughs> it cracks me up every time I watch that video. She is so frustrated. Anyone who's ever tried to put one of those straws into a juice pack knows that it, is, it, it takes a miracle to get, to get that thing in there. But what I want to tell you, Jesus did many, many other things that are also recorded for us. These are the miracles thus far that Jesus has done. These miracles, by the way, by how they are done, by when they are done, by where they are done, and by to whom they are done, show us something of the nature of the kingdom that Jesus announces was at hand when he began his ministry. They also confirm what Jesus announced when he read that passage from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue. If you want to know more about the kingdom of God, look to the parables in Matthew 13, but also look to the, to the miracles in, Matthew, in chapter, Matthew chapters 4 to 14. The kingdom of heaven is for rich and poor, for religious and non-religious, for Jew and Gentile, male and female, adult and child. The kingdom is for all those who recognize their spiritual sickness and come to Christ in faith for rest, for satisfaction, and for the forgiveness of sin. The miracle Jesus did teaches us about the nature of the kingdom, but it also reveals to us the identity of the king. In the miracles, we see Jesus as the one prophesied in the Old Testament, the one whose very miracles blind receiving sight, the lame walking, leopards cleansed, deaf hearing, dead being raised to life, attest to his identity. This is the promised Christ, the one that the Jews were waiting for, the ones that we needed and didn't even know it. And we are able to see in these miracles that the one who has the authority over disease, over every affliction, over nature itself, has the authority over our greatest illness, which is sin. And that leads to death, even authority over death itself. Jesus did many, many other things, among which I suppose miracles could have been included. I can show it to you. Listen to the words of John as he concludes his gospel. 
There are many other things Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose the whole world would not be big enough for all the books that would be written. So let's look at our next miracle this morning of Jesus. It's from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 23. Now this miracle is coming directly, really directly after Jesus feeds the 5,000. Plus 5,000 men. And that doesn't include women and children. Tack on a wife and a child, you're at 15,000 people. Multiple children. Imagine the size of this crowd. And he feeds them with just two fish and five loaves. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. This is the crowd from the feeding of the 5,000. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw him, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So read this story. There are a few questions that, that jump out at me. In the very first verse, the very first word is immediately. That seemed odd to me. I'm often drawn both to the less obvious and, and the applicable. What's less obvious draws me back to Lance's message when the disciples were faced with a similar storm. Only that time, God was right there with them. Jesus was asleep in the boat. And the question that Lance posed are just as applicable here. What do we expect of God when things come along, and what does God expect of us? The very reason Jesus rushed the disciples onto the boat had everything to do with the masses expected of Jesus. The word in Greek used for immediately is anankazo. And it means to constrain, whether by threat, entreaty, force, or persuasion. Jesus forced his disciples to get onto the boat. Why did he force them to get into the boat and to send them back? Well, the crowds, we know were looking for food. They were looking for healing and more miracles, mostly food. 5,000 men, plus women and children, had just seen miracles take place all day and had been fed until they couldn't eat anymore. But they didn't want Jesus. They wanted what they could get from him and what he could do for them. They didn't want to know him or follow him as God, short of what was in it for them. How do we know this? We know it from the other gospel writers who record the same event, Mark and John. John in particular tells us this. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, at this point, everyone had been dismissed. It was late in the evening. They went to bed. The next day, when everyone woke up, they realized that Jesus wasn't there anymore. But yet, no other boat had left the dock. 
And so they immediately sail across the lake themselves to find him. And when they do find him, they ask him, how did you get here? There's no other boat that was left. How did you get here? And Jesus doesn't answer that question. He cuts to the heart of the matter. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus tells them to seek him, the bread of life, instead. Later on in the same chapter, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? What have you come to Jesus for? Have you recognized that his teachings, or at least living them out, can be hard at times? Are you willing to accept that and to try to follow him anyway? The Westminster Shorter Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? And I bet you there's some of us here who know the answer to that. The answer to that, as they stated in the catechism, is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. While this is not a phrase that's directly taken out of the scriptures, the wisdom behind it surely is. The Bible tells us with great clarity that man was created in order to bring glory to God. When we glorify him in obedience, we enjoy his good favor. Does that mean we won't see trouble in hard times? No. Look to our text. They were following Jesus' commands. But look what happened. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance two to three miles away from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Waves and wind in the Scripture often speak of destruction and chaos and the work of the enemy. But regardless, God wants our faith and obedience. This glorifies Him. But having faith and obedience does not mean life is going to be a bowl of cherries. In fact, Jesus told us, I've told you all this so that trusting me, you will be unshakable and assured, deeply at peace. In this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties, but take heart. I have conquered the world. I wish I could tell you that when you come to Jesus, all your problems will be over. I wish I could tell you that when you give your life to God, it will be clear sailing. I wish I could tell you that following Jesus was a quiet and easy road, but I can't tell you any of those things. I'd be lying. Life is tough for everyone, Christians included, maybe Christians even especially. Because God tells us and asks us to do hard things in His name. We have 14 people, as Jessica pointed out this morning, who are already down in Florida on a hurricane relief mission trip. Except for Frank, he's, he's right there behind us in full-size poster. Trips me up every time I see it. I said, there's Frank. They're going to be doing hard physical things. And while they're ministering there, they may also encounter the attacks of the enemy, both spiritually and physically. The waves will be against them. They need our prayers. Let me tell you right now, if you are following Jesus, you are going to face some tough times in life. But just like the disciples who were being beaten up by the storm, there are three things I would like you to remember when you are going through tough times. Three things to remember when going through tough times. You are never out of God's sight. You are never out of God's reach. And you are never out of God's care. Everyone goes through tough times in life. But when you are a Christian, you have these promises from God to help you when the going gets tough. You are never out of God's sight. The disciples were in a tough spot. They were out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee at night, frightened by a strong headwind. 
and not making any headway. How did they get into this spot? Matthew tells us that Jesus sent them there. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. And so the disciples were in a tough spot because they were following Jesus' commands. So much for the idea that following Jesus will never get you into trouble. But the important thing to remember here is that just because you are in a tough spot does not mean that you are not in the right spot where God wants you to be. You could be exactly where God wants you to be. Sometimes following Jesus means going through trials. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him because he had a purpose for the trial that they were about to face. James, in his letter, tells us to count it all joy when we fall into trials and temptations. They improve our faith. They make us stronger. So Jesus sends the disciples across the sea in a boat. He dismisses the crowd, and then he goes up to the mountain to pray. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. You might wonder how Jesus knew what the disciples were going through. The parallel passage in, in Mark tells us he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them and they weren't making any headway. So the disciples are stuck in the middle of the lake fighting the winds, and Jesus is up on the mountainside praying. Was he praying for the disciples? We don't know. But as he looked out at the Sea of Galilee, he saw the disciples in their predicament. I believe this is actually the first of four miracles that we find in this passage. The Sea of Galilee is about four to five miles across, and so the disciples were at least two miles, three miles out. Now, maybe on a clear day, with calm seas from an elevated position, you might just possibly make out a small boat on a lake from two miles away. I doubt you could identify the boat or its occupants. You might be able to spot it, though. But at nighttime, with the wind whipping up and the, the waves and the water blowing, there's not a chance. And so I believe a miracle of divine seeing takes place here. Jesus is somehow able to look over the lake and see the disciples straining at the oars. But whether that was a miracle of seeing or not, the principle for us is the same. You are never out of God's sight. You might feel like you are stuck out in the middle of nowhere, far away from God's watchful eye. But it's not true. God sees it all. He knows your situation. He knows what you are going through. Whenever you are in a tough spot, remember this. You are never out of God's sight. You are also never out of God's reach. Look at verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. About three in the morning, we understand. Jesus was on land, and the disciples were out in the middle of the lake. It would seem like they were out of Jesus' reach. But then Jesus comes walking right out to where they are. Now, this is the big miracle of the story, Jesus walking on water. Skeptics have tried to come up with all sorts of explanations for what happened. Oh, Jesus was actually just walking through the shallows at the edge of the lake. Of course, that doesn't explain how Jesus spoke to them in the middle of the lake or, or climbed in the boat from two miles away. Now, this is a true miracle. Jesus walking on top of the water, demonstrating his power over nature and his own true nature as the Son of God. We don't have this power. Unless, of course, the water is frozen. We can walk on frozen water. Aaliyah and Evelyn, 
my two oldest granddaughters went down to our pond in wintertime. While they were there just looking at the pond, which at the time was frozen over with a thin layer of our ice, along comes a chipmunk walking on the ice out in the middle of the pond. Such a cute little thing. Aaliyah points to the chipmunk and says, Look, Evelyn, look, look at the cute little chipmunk. And they both go, Oh, it's so cute. And just as they went, Oh, it's so cute, kerplunk, it fell through the ice. And they went, Oh. <laughs> now, I'm not laughing because it's funny that the chipmunk died, but their change of, Oh, to, oh, <laughs> was funny when they came up to tell it. In the Old Testament, only God walks on water and has power over the sea. Job 9 8 says, of God. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And so by this miracle, Jesus was showing that he is truly God. All the way back to Genesis, we see God hover over the waters. Later on, the disciples will acknowledge this when they worship him in the boat, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Matthew continues in verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Here are the disciples stuck in the middle of the lake, and Jesus comes to help them, but they don't recognize him. They cannot comprehend a human being being able to walk on water, so they assume that it is a ghost. We are never out of God's reach, but sometimes we don't recognize it when God comes to rescue us. Sometimes God's rescues may seem a little frightening because we don't understand it all. God can be right there to help us, but we have to be ready to respond to that help when it comes. We need to realize that wherever we go, God is there. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 139 is one of my favorites, and some of the verses there read this way. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. You might feel like you are stuck in the middle of the lake going nowhere, far away from help or rescue, but God is always there. You are never out of God's reach. You are also never out of God's care. You're never out of God's sight. You're never out of God's reach. And finally, you are never out of his care. Verses 27 to 31. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? The disciples are terrified. They think Jesus is a ghost, but Jesus tells them, it's me. And I'm guessing he was screaming that out. It's me. And the Greek word he is using, I'm told here, is the same as saying, I am. Now, where have we heard that before? When Moses was all the way back in, in Exodus and, and Genesis, back in there, and, he's, and he meets God at the burning bush, and he asks God, who shall I say sent me? God says, say I am has sent you. Jesus is announcing that God is there. And he's also announcing that I am God. Don't be afraid. And then Peter says to the Lord, Lord, if it's really you, tell me, come to you on the water. Jesus tells Peter, come. And Peter does. He gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water toward Jesus. 
This is the third miracle in the passage. First, Jesus sees the disciples from a long way off, out in the middle of the night, out in the middle of the wind, out in the middle of the waves. Then Jesus comes walking on the water out to the disciples. Now Jesus allows Peter to come walking to him. Can you imagine the faith it took for Peter to get out of that boat? Can you imagine what it must have been thinking when he first put his foot to the water and then put the rest of his weight on it? Can you imagine how awesome it must have been to suddenly find yourself walking on the water toward Jesus in the middle of wind and huge waves? I love Peter because he is always saying or doing big, bold things for Jesus. Immediately followed up by screwing things up. I love Peter because I'm just like him. I want to do big, bold things for Jesus, but I know I'm about to screw him up. Peter is a great encouragement for messed up believers like you and me who sincerely want to follow Jesus, but we are constantly falling flat on our faces. And Peter does it again here. He goes from one of the highest points in his life to one of the lotus. Here he is walking on water with Jesus, and then he takes another look at the wind, and he's suddenly afraid, and he starts to sink. I'm sure as he starts to sink, he probably grows even more afraid. And so he does the only thing he can think of. He cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus does. Jesus reaches out his hand and catches him before he sinks beneath the surface of the waves. You have little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt? There's a lot we can learn from Peter first, from Peter here. First, there's a lesson of faith. When you trust Jesus, when you trust God for big things, beautiful things in your life, you're going to find that the life of faith is an adventure. So often we want God to do amazing things in our lives, but we're afraid to take the first step. I like the way one author put it when he said, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. It takes a step of faith. And Peter did that. Good for Peter. Then there is a lesson of focus. You need to stay focused, your eyes focused on Jesus. It's great when you take the first step of faith, but you've got to remember there's steps two, three, four, and five right behind it. Peter did fine as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. And if we get into trouble when, if he got into trouble, well, he gets into trouble when he loses his focus on Jesus and then he starts to look at the wind instead. Don't lose your focus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, not on your problems. And then thirdly, there is a lesson of forgiveness. God loves and forgives even when we screw things up, even when we lose faith, even when you lose focus, even when you mess up big time. You just need to call out, Lord, save me. And Jesus is right there to help you back into the boat. And so we have these three great lessons of faith, focus, and forgiveness. Faith, God can do amazing things in your life. Focus, keep your eyes on Jesus, not on your problems. Forgiveness, God loves you and forgives you even when you fail. And then Jesus and Peter get back into the boat with the rest of the disciples. And this is when the fourth miracle in the passage occurs. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Jesus and Peter got back into the boat, and immediately the wind dies down, and it stops. It's calm again. If you recall, this happened before. Those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus here, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. God seeks those who will worship him in spirit and truth. Why did God even perform this miracle? Why did he want, what did he want the disciples to learn? I said earlier there was a lesson for them in this story, in this trial that they had to go through. Well, I think back to Lance's message. When Jesus is asleep in the boat and the disciples wake him because they think we might as well all die together. Let's wake Jesus up. 
Jesus speaks to the water and the wind. And what does he say? What does he say to the water and the wind? Peace be still. I hear it out there. Peace be still. And it was. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. And what was the reaction of the disciples? They were filled with awe and said among themselves, Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? For them, it's a do-over. Have you ever been in school and taken a test and failed miserably? And you either had to take the test over or repeat the class? I had a whole semester like that in college. Failed every class. Missed the drop date. Straight F's. Had to take them all over. I was too focused on dating my wife. She was distracting me. Since she's not here, I'll blame it on her. It was her fault. Had to repeat all of those classes. This miracle, among other things, is a do-over for the disciples. Their first answer was wrong. Who is this man? This time they got it right. Those who were in the boat worshiped Jesus saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And this is the first time that they say these words. God in heaven has said it. The demons have said it. This is the first time that the disciples say it. Jesus loved and cared for Peter when he was sinking in the water. Jesus loved and cared for his disciples when they were fighting against the wind in the boat. They were never out of God's care, and neither are you. Worship team, you can make your way back up. Does your life feel like the disciples today? Maybe you had no intention of being where you are in life, where you find yourself right now, your job, your marriage, your finances. You've been blown off course by situations you couldn't control. You feel like you should be at your original destination by now, but at this point, you've given up hope of ever getting there. You just want to make it back safely. Or perhaps you had big dreams for your life that you gave up a long time ago. You're not even worried about progress anymore. You're just wondering, can I survive? What does Jesus do when you are at your moment of desperation? Matthew 14, 25 says, Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the water. Notice that he didn't tell the disciples to come to him. He knew they couldn't get to him. So he went to them instead. The same is true for you. When you're at that point of desperation, Jesus comes to you. I love the fact that Jesus does not stand on the shore shouting instructions, row harder. No, turn the other way. Your other left, dummy. He didn't stand on the shore shouting at them. You need a miracle when you're in a storm. You don't need advice. You need somebody to show up, and that's what Jesus did. He intervened in the disciples' storm. This is the gospel. God doesn't stand on the shore telling you what to do. Instead, he comes out and he meets you in your own storm, in your pain, in your fear, in your depression and discouragement. He comes to you. What a God. You may feel abandoned right now, but you are not. Bible says in John 14, 18, No, I will not abandon you or leave you as orphans in the storm. I will come to you. You can count on it. If you want in on a God who cares for you, you want to know that you're never out of His sight, never out of His care, never out of His reach. It's as simple as saying, God, I need you in my life. I know I've messed up big time. I'm crying out, Lord, save me. And He will come down, reach a hand down, and pull you up out of the miry pit, out of the waters that are about to flow over you. It's as simple as saying, Lord, come into my heart. I confess my sin. I confess you as Lord and Savior that you rose from the dead. And he will do that.
Pay fellowship. Know today that God is for you, not against you. Have a good day in Jesus.